As we continue in our study of the book of Jeremiah, and in this particular chapter, which we'll still need a little bit more time in the next couple of weeks to, to finish it, it's, it's a very rich and full chapter. I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, Jeremiah 30 through 33 is called the book of consolation, the book of comfort. For 29 chapters, Jeremiah has had to uh, prophesy strongly against Judah and Jerusalem. But in chapters 30 through 33, the Lord commands Jeremiah to speak words of comfort. And there are some very important words that we're going to look at tonight that we want to keep in our hearts and in our remembrance, not only about Israel, but about ourselves and about our lives in Christ. We pick up in reading verse 10 through 14, and I'll pray as soon as we finish reading this passage, down through verse 14. Jeremiah continues, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord, for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. And then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, this evening we gather together to hear, to read, and to study your word. I ask, Father, that as you move among us in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you fill us with your Holy Spirit that you fill us with your wisdom and understanding, that we may best understand your word. We pray, Father, that you will strengthen us in it. We know that uh, what we have in the Old Testament is for our good and is for our benefit as well, as learning all of the academics concerning Israel. But, 
Lord, this is your word that is alive and always powerful and ever meaningful to our hearts. So we desire, Lord, all your wisdom and all your grace. We pray this evening for the Salas family and the Olivas family as they tonight grieve and mourn the loss of Miguel Olivas. In one sense, Lord God, we we thank you that he was found. And although he passed away, Lord, that burden of worry and concern, at least from that standpoint, of having lost him physically, can be put aside. We pray you strengthen, Lord, their lives and their hearts this week as as they go through this process of mourning and dealing, Lord, with this loss. May it also be an encouragement, Lord, an encouragement to them that you are ever-present with them, that you are indeed the strength of their lives. And may it be that you speak to the hearts of all who come to give their respects and their condolences to this family, that your word would go forth and speak life to the lifeless, that would speak hope to the hopeless, and that will speak joy of eternal life to those who are without joy. We ask this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said earlier, the message is found in the book of Consolation, which we know to be chapters 30 to 33 of the prophecy of Jeremiah, are, for the most part, focused on a couple of of words throughout. And though we may not see those words directly in the text, we will see a whole lot of words directly in the text, but if we don't see these particular words directly in the text, their thoughts and their intents and their goals are quite there. And those words are the words restoration and reconciliation. Now you're going to hear a lot of words tonight that begin with the letter R. I suppose that the Lord has done that so that we might remember what we're learning. So, restoration and reconciliation. We have seen the hope of restoration in our study in chapter 30 of Jeremiah. And now here in chapter 31, we continue that examination of God's reconciliation with the nation of Israel. Now the Lord gave the Israelites a wonderful promise. The promise was this, that He would one day reconcile his backsliding people to himself. And I want to remind you of a phrase that we encountered in last week's study in verse 4. Jeremiah 31 verse 4 says, Again I will build you, God speaking to them, again I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Rebuilt. O virgin of Israel. As I said last week, They weren't acting as a virgin. 
As a matter of fact, many times the Lord has to remind them that they were as harlots before Him. But I mentioned that when God reconciles His backsliding people to Himself, He would cleanse them from all their sin. That is the promise. And that is a tremendous part of this reconciliation, is that when He reconciles backsliding people, He forgives them of their sin, and He cleanses them of their sin. We can't approach God with our sin. Therefore, sin has to be dealt with. And to understand the biblical intent of the word reconciliation, because that's heavy throughout this chapter, but to understand the biblical intent of the word reconciliation, or to reconcile, would be to grab hold of the definition of to reconcile. What does it mean to reconcile? Let me give you a very clear and simple definition. From the Hebrew, to reconcile means to be pleased with satisfying or pardoning a debt. To be pleased with satisfying or pardoning a debt. That is the full extent of understanding the word reconcile or to reconcile. To be pleased with satisfying or pardoning a debt. In other words, God is pleased with something that takes that debt away from us. And as I said last time, only God can accomplish that for those that He loves. Only God can accomplish that for those that He loves. Only God can accomplish that reconciliation in our lives. So as Christians now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have experienced the greatness of God's reconciliation. So I want to lay a foundation about reconciliation for you and for our, the purposes of our understanding the study and understanding God's reconciliation toward His people Israel as it applies to us. Romans 5, let's turn there. In the New Testament, Romans 5, chap, uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 where Paul says this, and I want you to listen carefully to the thought and intent of the Apostle as he lays clear the understanding of what it means to be reconciled. He says, for when we were still without strength, and think about this, when we were in sin and when we were without Christ, we may, we may have thought we had a lot of strength for a lot of things, but one thing we didn't have strength for, and that was to save ourselves. We didn't have strength to save ourselves. We didn't have strength to, to work our way out of the, out of the maze of, of sin. We couldn't do it. We were without strength for that purpose. So for when, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see how clear that picture is. We didn't have strength to save ourselves. We, didn't, we couldn't even die for ourselves to save ourselves. Christ had to die for us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners. There's a second time it says we were still without strength, we were still sinners. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners. We had not yet come to know Christ, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to see how eternal God's work through Christ was on the cross. That even when we were still sinners, now we come thousands of years after the cross, 
Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. His blood, not our blood, not the blood of bulls and goats. His blood. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled, there's the word, when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. By His death we've been reconciled, we are saved by His life. Jesus died and He rose again. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So it all comes back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, we cannot be reconciled to God. Without Jesus, we cannot be reconciled to God. God sent His only begotten Son. So only God can accomplish that for those He loves. What is that? Reconciliation. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just a couple of chapters over to your right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And there in verse 17. Great verse of scripture. By the way, when we get back to our study of the book of Acts, we're going to get back to our memorizing scripture. This was one that we memorized earlier. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and not, in other words, not putting their sins on anyone's account, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. In other words, we are now to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing a message of reconciliation to the world. So we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message to the world. For he he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God through him. What does that say? It gives us an understanding of that definition of reconciliation. To be pleased with satisfying or pardoning a debt. What was it that pleased the debt for God? In his eyes, it was the blood of Jesus Christ. He saw the blood of Christ and he was satisfied that the debt was paid. That's reconciliation, you see. So what a wonderful truth reconciliation is. So with that in mind, we need to get back to Israel. No matter how far away they went from their God in their backsliding... God longed for them to be reconciled to Him. Now remember, certainly there were some who walked away from God, rejected God, and they would die in their sins. But any time we deal with Israel, we're dealing with a people and a nation. 
So while there are individuals, just like there would be individuals in the United States, you know, people have said well, America is a Christian nation. Well, at one time it was founded upon Christian principles, Judeo-Christian uh, principles. But it's, it's hard to say that, you know, just Americans are, are Christian and so on and so forth. So, so you have to understand that as we've come to know Christ, we have to, we have to know him individually. But corporately, those who believe in Jesus Christ, we are the church. Those who believe what Christ has done for us on the cross and that he rose from the dead, if we believe that, we are saved, the Bible says. So that is our, uh, that is our salvation, is the truth of what Christ has done. But we had to come to that individually. We had to come to that knowledge one at a time. But God raised up a nation so that that nation would take the word of God to all nations so that everyone would come to know who Jesus Christ is. Of course, it would be that they would preach the Messiah, and of course, the Messiah is Jesus Christ. And I say that because I want you to understand that as a nation, they had gone far from God, but God loved them, and He longed for them to be reconciled to Him. And so today, He wants to be reconciled to His people, and He wants to shower His grace on them again. And He wants to give them rest the rest that we spoke of last week. And, and, and it brings to mind all of these words that we're going to see today. Uh, I don't know if they're going to be up here, but maybe they are. Reunite. Remember he reunited the north and the south to become one nation again. So there was re, re, reunity. There's restoration. So restore, reconcile, and rest. Those were four words. I, 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 I failed that one. Uh, rebuilt. He had to rebuild Israel too. So it's reunite, rebuild, restore, reconcile, and give rest to his people Israel. So there's a few more coming, so be ready. If you see an R, don't let it get by you. So now as we enter into the next section of chapter uh, 31, which is verse 10 and following, we are presented with God's wonderful promise to save and abundantly provide for his people Israel. So now the expansion of understanding his restoration and his reconciliation with Israel. He is now going to save them and abundantly provide for them. So already in verses 7 through 9, we have seen that the Lord will, will gather his people from the ends of the earth, which causes his people to shout and to sing with gladness. Now remember, there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. There was a little bit of rejoicing when they came back from Babylon after their seven years of captivity. But then again, they, you know, they, they rebuilt the city and they rebuilt Jerusalem and, and so on and so forth. But then in AD 70, they were scattered to all parts of the world. Uh, so uh, that was the near fulfillment, at least when they came back to, to Jerusalem. The far fulfillment is what we're looking at yet to come. God is dealing with the nation of Israel again. God has brought them back into the land again. God has promised that. God has promised to restore them and reconcile them. He hasn't done it yet, but he's getting ready to. So with that in mind, we've seen that the Lord will gather His people from the ends of the earth, which causes His people to shout and sing. He will set them free from the land of their captives, which He did when He, got, when he pulled them out of Assyria and Babylon. And He accepts their repentance. When you were looking at verse 9, if you just take a quick glance at it, when it talks about their weeping, that's their repentance. So there's another R word that's important. Repentance. 
as they return to their homeland. There's another R. Return. They're returning. And in verses 10 and 11, the Lord promises to watch over His own people like a shepherd and redeem them from those whose hand is stronger than theirs. Another R word. Redeem. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. You know, the beauty of verse 10 is this. Don't miss this. It's real easy, but you can miss it. He who scattered Israel. Who scattered Israel? God did. He scattered his own people because they had disobeyed him. They had rebelled against him. And he scattered them. But he who scattered Israel will gather them and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. And it reminds us of the good shepherd who goes out after the one sheep. He's going out after his one sheep, Israel. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Did you find another R word there? Two of them. Redeem and ransom. Throughout history, the Lord has had to discipline and scatter Israel among the nations of the world because of their sins. But in the last days, He will gather them back. Guiding them, protecting them, and providing for them. So in one sense, you can say that he's rounding them up. There's your other R word. Kind of threw it in there. But he's rounding them up. And we're then told that he will ransom Israel from the hand of one stronger than he. In other words, God Himself will pay the ransom price to set His people free from their bondage. God is going to pay the ransom price. Most of you know what the ransom price is. But let's work our way there. Understand how God does this. Remember that first and foremost, Jesus said that He came to His own. He came first to the Jewish people. And John tells us in his Gospel, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But to them that received Him, to them gave He the right to become the children of God to as many, Jew and Gentile, that believe in His name. So think about that. He came to his own. The ransom price came to Israel. We're told in Isaiah 35 verse 10, The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You go down a few verse, uh, chapters to Isaiah 44, verses 22 and 23. God again says, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. And He says, Return to Me, for I have redeemed you. That is a command, by the way, for what has already taken place for them. Return to Me, for I have redeemed you. 
Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified Himself in Israel. All we can say is that this is really pointing to the final time. This is pointing to that far fulfillment that is yet to be. But it is spoken as if it is already done. Return to me because I've redeemed you. How did he redeem them? Because the Redeemer, the ransom price, came to this earth. Okay, so let's check our list again. Reunite, restore, reconcile, rest, repentance, return, redeem. I think I uh, forgot rebuild. Round them up and ransom. Got them all yet? As the New Testament clearly reveals, God Himself paid the ransom price to set His people free from their bondage. The ransom paid by God was the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Mashiach of Israel. Both Jew and Gentile are all saved because of the great ransom price paid by God. The gift of His own dear Son. When I say that both Jew and Gentile are all saved, that would be those who have received and believed the truth. But whether Jew or Gentile, we are saved because of the great ransom price paid by God. The gift of His one dear Son. Please go back to Romans for just a moment. Romans chapter 3. For in Romans 3, verse 21 and following. You know, the book of Romans was written by Paul as a tremendous theological dissertation. This is the grandest theology of the New Testament in the book of of Romans. And Paul says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Remember that the law only brings us to Christ. The law is only the tutor, the schoolmaster that makes clear about Jesus. But he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That, of course, are the Holy Scriptures. The Old Testament was what we call it. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus or through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. So that's important. You've got to believe. For there is no difference, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who's all? All Jews and all Gentiles. Everyone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then he says, being justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption, the redeeming work, That is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to redeem? To buy back. Jesus paid the price to buy us back. 
So being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, fancy word, all it means is an atoning sacrifice. So whom God set forth as an atoning sacrifice by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, He has become the justifier for us through Christ. When He is the just, then He has to judge those who haven't come, but the justifier when He sees the blood of Christ, the redemption or the ransom that was paid. And in a shorter sense, Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So what is the ransom price? The blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. It was paid for them. For the Jew first. And also for the Greek. And that was one of Paul's first statements in the book of Romans. When he talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn there real quick. It's not in my notes, but you've got to turn there real quick. In Romans chapter 1. And then we'll, we'll, you know, then we're just laying a little foundation here, and then we're going to get right back to what we're doing. Verse 16 of Romans 1 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile or the Greek. So you see, Jesus came at the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4 4 says that. Jesus came at the fullness of time. He came, in other words, at the very perfect time for Jew and Gentile. So that we might be ransomed and redeemed. So getting back to our text now. All that foundation laid. God promised to, to bless the remnant abundantly. The remnant of Israel. There's another R, by the way. They're a remnant. They're not all, you know, good and bad, good and wicked. No, just the remnant, the ones who believe. God promised to bless the remnant abundantly by, by providing for their every need. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. Now back in Jeremiah 31. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord, for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. And then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance. 
There's your other R, rejoice in the dance, and the young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. So, I told you about remnant, the other R. Okay. So when they return to the Lord, He will shower them with gift upon gift and meet all the necessities of life and not withhold any material blessing from them. He is going to bless them out of their socks, in other words. Their God will supply an abundance of crops and food that include grain, new wine and oil and meats from the flocks and the herds. All for His people. Their God will erase all sorrow due to poverty and hunger. And yes, they suffered then. And there's a time that they're going to go through that again. Their God will cause them to celebrate in comfort and joy rather than sorrow, whether in their youth or advanced stage. There's not going to be young and old anymore. I mean, the young are going to be with the old. The old are going to be with the young. And, and the young make the old feel young. And, 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 and the old make the young feel younger. But nobody feels old when God is in charge and when God is in control. Their God will satisfy the needs of their priests who are sometimes neglected by their people. And He is going to fill all the people with the bounty of His goodness. That is what we just read in Jeremiah 31 verses 12 through 14. But to build on that particular thought, let me give you Psalm 36, verses 7 and 8. The words of David, the, the, the shepherd king of Israel, he says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! How precious is your mercy! Or how precious are your mercies! Because usually loving kindness is in the, is in the plural, so it's like saying, How precious are your loving kindnesses, O God! Therefore the children of men put their shadow under or put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied. Notice. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. And again the picture points to what? Prophetically it points to the new day to come. After all of the tribulation, after all of the persecution, after all of this, when Christ comes to be, to be their king on this earth, when he places his feet on the Mount of Olives, as it says in Zechariah, and in the book of Revelation, <laughs> he is going to care for his people. Psalm 68 verse 19 says this, Blessed be the Lord, who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. But even now we can trust the Lord to give us everything that we need for life and godliness. And we especially as believers in Jesus Christ can say that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So if we have Christ, we have everything. It's not a believer in the world that truly has the Lord Jesus that is lacking anything because we have Him.
One of the things that we find in Malachi chapter 3, and that's something that we're probably going to touch on when we get in our, in our study of, of stewardship on Sunday morning in a couple of weeks, but it needs to be brought up at this point in time because there is this understanding that we have to have about how God blesses His people. Notice what God tells His people through the prophet Malachi. Malachi 3 verse 10. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Do you know where your storehouse is? If God has brought you here, and this is your church, and you're a member of this body, this is your storehouse. Simple. That's, that's the simplicity of that. This is your storehouse. Bring all the tithes. The tithes is, of course, indicative of 10%, but, you know, that's just to start. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me. He says, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing, that there will not be room enough to receive it. You see, God wants to bless his people now. God wanted to bless his people then. This was at the very end of, of the prophetic age. Near the end of it anyway, because John the Baptist would actually be the last true prophet of the Old Testament, as it were. But before the intertestamental period, before the 200 years between, where there's nothing that a lot of people know a, whole, a lot about. Actually, it's 400 years. Um, God still wanted to bless them. And he says, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. And of course God gave them this promise, but it was also a command. And they failed in that. And therefore they went into captivity. So, for us in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, God, uh, Paul says, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. The abundance is not about, you know, counting how many toys we have, and going around telling people, look at all the toys that God's given me. You can have all the toys you want too. No, forget about toys. This is not a game. You know why God gives us what He gives us? So that we can continue the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this one verse bears it out. That you may have an abundance for every good work. For every good work. Philippians 4 verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need. Your need, by the way, not your wants, your need, according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But I want to give you a warning. The warning itself comes from Scripture. It comes from James chapter 4. Now, this is a letter written to the church. So, was the church having problems early on? This is one of the earlier letters in the church. And this is what James writes. Where do wars and fights come from among you? 
So even in the early church, they were fighting among themselves. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. In other words, you ask with wrong intention. That you may spend it on your pleasures. So there's a warning, even in, in this issue of of knowing that God wants to abundantly supply us. There's a reason why He wants to do it. So that we can continue the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ until the day that Jesus comes again. So as we enter into the next portion of Scripture, now we're going to see a sharp contrast that's presented to us. Israel's future hope. Israel's future hope will contrast sharply with her present misery. Remember, as Jeremiah is writing this, they're going into captivity. There's a misery already that they're dealing with. But he wants to contrast that with a future hope. So please understand this passage, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. Refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping and your, ear, and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. You see... The present, mis- the present misery, the future hope. First of all, the cry from Ramah was one of great mourning and weeping as, as Jeremiah pictured Rachel, one of Jacob's wives, lamenting bitterly for her children. And you know, she would die. She wouldn't see the completion of all this. She would even die herself in, in childbirth. But to what was the prophet referring Ramah was a town five miles north of Jerusalem. And Rachel was Joseph and Benjamin's mother. Now Joseph was the father of Ephraim or Ephraim and Manasseh, who became the two major tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Jeremiah was drawing a picture of the weeping women of the northern kingdom as they watched their children being carried into exile in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. So there is that picture. But then that picture can expand. It's possible that Jeremiah also had the deportation of 586 B.C. in mind, that, uh, that uh, deportation of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, since Ramah was the staging point for that deportation. And we learned that in chapter 40 of Jeremiah. I'll read it to you. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. So Ramah was a staging point for the captivity and for the exile. And when he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and and Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon. So... That's certainly possible here as well. But in either case, what we need to understand is that the women were crying because they would never see their children again. That's the bottom line. They would never see their children again. 
But as the women of Israel and Judah wept for their exiled children, the Lord offered them a word of comfort. The Lord offered them a word of comfort. God was going to bring about a restoration. And in verse 16 it says, Thus says says the Lord, Refrain your voice. It's another R if you want to write it down. Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. So going back to verse 15 for a moment, this particular prophecy would be very prominent in the first coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. We've often wondered why is this particular prophecy in the Christmas story? Well, if you could start, let's start in verse 16. It says, And Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, and you have to understand that this wasn't like when Jesus was still an infant. He was probably a couple of years old. And we know that because of what Herod ends up doing. But it says that when he saw that he was deceived, the wise men were, uh, by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years and under, according to the time which he determined from the wise men. And then was fulfilled, notice, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now it's, you know, how was Herod's slaughter of the babies a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15? You know, we never really bring it up when we get to the Christmas. We read it and then you know, go on. But it's important for us to understand why. This is here and why it's in Jeremiah. The answer to the question probably hinges on Matthew's use of the word fulfilled. Because the Greek word for fulfillment, while it doesn't mean that prophecies are brought, uh, I should say, while it does mean that, that prophecies are brought to accomplishment and completion. So when a prophecy is given and it's completed, we can say the prophecy is fulfilled. That, it does mean that. It also means, and it also indicates, that the full potential of something in the Old Testament has been realized. The full potential of something in the Old Testament has been realized. For example, Matthew 3.15 says, Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So righteousness is to be fulfilled... Jesus is the one who fulfills all righteousness. So there is an understanding that that has been fulfilled in his coming. Not so much that some specific prophecy was in in fact being fulfilled, even though many prophecies were being fulfilled at that time. Take, for example, Matthew 5.17, when Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill So when he's saying fulfill here, he means that uh, the full potential of what Jesus came to do has been realized. He has come to fulfill the whole law. 
And so Matthew's use of the word fulfill was to associate the slaughter of uh, the slaughter in Bethlehem with the sadness of Ramah. The sadness of the women who wept because they would never see their children again. The pain of those mothers in Ramah who watched their sons being carried into exile found its full potential in the cries of the mothers of Bethlehem who cradled their sons' lifeless bodies in their arms. So that is the connection. And it just hinges on that word fulfilled. So we go on in this uh, complete here, our study now in, in verses 18 and 19 of Jeremiah. Where it says, I have, surely heard, uh, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastened me, and I was chased, uh, chastised. I'm sorry, you have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me, and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning I repented, and after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. So the Lord God Himself heard the cry of Ephraim, who represents the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, the ones who went into captivity first, because the kings of Israel, the northern kingdoms, were all wicked and evil. So the Lord hears the cry of Ephraim, acknowledging that he had chastised and chastened them like an untrained calf. They were crying out to God to restore them because he was their God. And so Ephraim repented and felt humiliated and ashamed of his youthful rebellion against the Lord. The striking of the thigh, by the way. Now let's go back a minute, because we, we, can't, we can't go through this too quickly. But that, that, that humiliation and that, uh, that shame that was expressed by those who had committed rebellion against the Lord, in their repentance... They were weeping. They came to salvation because they realized how, you know, they realized the depth of their sin in the eyes of God. And they were ashamed. Our sin should be a shame to us before a holy God who loved us as He did. The striking of the thigh, let's look at that for a moment. There in verse 19. It was a common expression of remorse, of horror, and of terror in the Near Eastern culture. We see one aspect of this in Ezekiel 21 verse 12 it says cry and wail son of man for it will be against my people against all the princes of Israel terrors including the sword will be against my people therefore strike your thigh it is, a, it is an issue of, of remorse of shame 
As a matter of fact, the New Living Translation of that same verse, Ezekiel 21 verse 12, says, Son of man, cry out and, and wail, pound your thighs in anguish. Pound your thighs in anguish, for that sword will slaughter my people and their leaders. Everyone will die. But there's an order that we see here in these verses. He says, you chastise me, and I repented. I turned and I repented. God did something. And they turned. Repentance. And we need to understand repentance tonight. Repentance in the full sense follows, not precedes. Repentance follows are being turned to God by God. Remember that only God is only God is is able to accomplish what we need. So God grants us repentance. Repentance follows, not precedes, our being turned to God. He turns us, and we repent. You see, Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. God does something. He pours on them grace and supplication. But notice the next phrase. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. That's the repentance. God brings grace. They realize their 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 sinful hearts in the presence of a holy God. The same thing happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of Israel filled the temple. And what did Isaiah say? Woe is me for I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips because for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. God shows himself. God gives. God presents. God showers. Here in in Zechariah, he gives them grace and supplication. Then they look on me, whom they pierce, and they weep. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Notice what Paul says. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world uh, produces death. And then Paul in 2 Timothy 2 verses 24 and 25 says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, and get this, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. To grant means to give. To give is like giving a gift. To grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Repentance follows our being turned to God. When we finally see God for who He is, when we finally see what He's done, when we finally see the blood of Christ, when we see the suffering of Christ for us, we mourn 
because that sin was great in putting Christ on the cross for us. I want to close with this thought. Because Acts 5.31 actually brings us back to Israel. It brings us back to what God did in sending His only begotten Son, not just for the church, but for Israel. It it brings us all back. And here it is, Acts 5.31. Him God has exalted. In other words, Jesus, God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior to give what? Repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To give repentance to Israel. God says, I am going to rebuild my people. I am going to restore them. I'm going to reconcile them. I'm going to reunite them first and foremost. That's already done. And they're going to go through these times of repentance. But Jesus came to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There's a beautiful little statement I want to leave you with about repentance. If you want to write it down, I'll go slow and I'll I'll repeat it a couple of times. But it's this. Repentance is the tear Repentance is the tear that flows from the eye of faith turned to Jesus. Repentance is the tear that flows from the eye of faith turned to Jesus. It's a beautiful statement. Repentance is the tear that flows from the eye of faith turned to Jesus. Paul said, turn, unto G- uh, re- uh, turn your eyes or focus your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despising the shame has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look unto Jesus. Repentance is the tear that flows from the eye of faith turned toward Jesus. Yes, Israel will be restored. Yes, they will be reconciled. The ransom price has already been paid. That's why it says, when they see him whom they pierced, what will they do? They will mourn. And they'll say, He did come. And we missed Him. Folks, I'm telling you right now. He's already come. Don't miss Him now. Because He's coming again. And He's coming to set all accounts straight. Not only for individuals but for nations and for all of his creation. Let's pray.